Scripture reading for tonight comes from the Scripture reading for tonight comes from the Acts chapter nine verses one through twenty-two. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he journeyed, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed about him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise, go to the street called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to the saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call upon thy name. But the Lord said to him, Go, For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and took food and was strengthened. For several days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and in the synagogues immediately he proclaimed Jesus, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called on his name? And he has come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. The word of the Lord. So, um, so what actually happened to Paul on the road that day? Was he really hit by blinding light and knocked to the ground? Did scales really fall from his eyes? Do light-blinded eyes actually have scales? Or is this propaganda to sell the Jesus story? Or maybe it's true, but as a metaphor, you know, the whole new vision thing, the Blindness and insight dialectic. So maybe we should spiritualize it. 
Well, be that as it may, historians are quite sure that there really was a man named Saul who turned from persecuting Jesus' followers to become the best-known, most notorious Christian who ever lived. And regardless of how it happened, the fact that it did happen at all seems remarkable and strange and unlikely. Because, you know, that's how I find all conversion stories to be remarkable, strange, and unlikely. I don't trust them. They seem, they seem so American somehow, as if our deep histories didn't matter, as if the accumulation of habits and perspectives and memories and traumas and the collective unconscious, they could all be swept away in a single moment of blinding light. You see, unlike some of you here in this congregation who were raised in the evangelical tradition where altar calls and the like were part of your faith tradition, I was raised Lutheran, which meant I had no agency whatsoever in my spiritual destiny. For us Lutherans, it was never a question of whether we accepted Jesus, but whether Jesus accepted us, and if he did, it was no thanks to anything we'd done. I mean, we really weren't into the whole spiritual journey thing. So I was raised to distrust conversion stories. Well, that said, let me tell you another one. So it's back in the 1940s, and Minardo Gomez was just another poor Roman Catholic kid living in El Salvador, chafing under the authority of religious conventions imposed by a very conventional parish priest. Minardo's priest was conservative to the core. He had no time for any other priest who wanted to, quote-unquote, politicize the church by looking at social concerns. He called them radicals, and he called them Marxists, which was a rather explosive allegation back in the height of the Cold War. So Minardo left uh, to study in Mexico, and he eventually returned to El Salvador as a Lutheran pastor became the first Lutheran bishop. I met him just last month. And this happened just as El Salvador was plunged into violence and chaos in the late 1970s. You see, the injustice plaguing El Salvador, which had really, I mean, the injustice had really started with the Spanish uh, conquering of the indigenous peoples. And it continued and continued, and it finally exploded in rebellion in the 1970s. A new movement had arisen within the Catholic Church, liberation theology. Inspired by the Cuban Revolution and by Vatican II, many priests stepped out of their pulpits to join in the struggle with the poorest of their parishioners. And Minardo was inspired by these priests who seemed so different from the conservative priest who had catechized him. But by now, Minardo's former priest was a highly placed auxiliary bishop. Not surprising, maybe. So when the position of archbishop opened, the Vatican appointed him, which was a great disappointment to progressive priests and to revolutionaries and to everybody like that. By all accounts, this appointment was very bad news for the poor. The name of this uh, new archbishop of San Salvador was Oscar Romero. 
Now, happy as the elites were with Romero's appointment, there were a couple things that worried them. First, Romero shunned luxury and insisted on living like a poor parish priest. Some rich people offered him a mansion, chauffeur-driven car. He wouldn't accept it. He lived in a small room off the chapel where he ministered, and um, so he'd be hard to corrupt. That was one problem. And also, despite his conservative credentials, Romero was personally close to the radical liberation priest, Father Rutilio Grande. Now, the rich hated Father Grande more than any other priest. Father Grande lived with the poor as if they were his equals, and he preached that Jesus wanted everybody to live with dignity and equality. Very soon after Romero became an archbishop, a right-wing death squad killed Father Grande as he was driving his battered jeep along a dirt road on his way to celebrate a mass. Some say that Monsignor Romero was blinded by his own tears that night and that the scales fell from his eyes as he viewed Father Grande's mangled corpse. Some describe it as, a mo- as the moment of Romero's conversion. But like I said, I don't think human eyes actually have scales. And besides, it's irrational to think that a 59-year-old man would change his convictions in just a couple of moments. But you know, I don't know one way or the other. In the end, it's hard to say for so much about Monsignor Romero has taken on a quality of sacred memory in the form of stories told by the people about who Romero is for them. But however it was, people realized it would not be as they had expected with this new archbishop. So Romero's first act was to hold a single mass in all of El Salvador the following Sunday. He suspended all the other masses just to hold one single mass in honor of Father Grande and two peasants who had been killed alongside him. In this, in direct opposition to instructions from the Vatican, so the defiance had begun. Romero addressed Father Grande's murderers directly. He said, who knows if the ones whose hands are bloodied with Father Grande's murder, if those who have killed, who have tortured, who have done so much evil are listening to me. Listen there in your criminal hideout, perhaps already repentant, you too are called to forgiveness. Now, the rich didn't like this preaching much, but they knew Romero or any archbishop would have to respond to the murder of his priests. That was a very calculated thing. They had to be careful about killing priests. Father Grande was sort of an exception. They figured he was more trouble alive than dead, but they knew knew the archbishop would speak out on that. The problem was Romero didn't stop there. He addressed the poor of El Salvador directly, telling them, You are the divine victim pierced for our offense. You are the body of Christ. If they ever take our radio, suspend our newspaper, silence us, put all of us priests to death, bishops included, and you are left alone without priests, then each of you will have to be God's microphone. Each of you will have to be a messenger, 
a prophet. Now for the archbishop to be telling the poorest people that they are prophets and messengers of God, that was more troubling. But to those who said a bishop of the church should pour oil on troubled waters and not rile them further, Romero responded, Peace is not the product of terror or fear. Peace is not the silence of cemeteries. Peace is not the silent result of violent repression. Peace is the generous, tranquil contribution of all to the good of all. Peace is dynamism. Peace is generosity. It is right. And it is duty. Now they were calling him by the same names he had once used for other priests. Radical. Subversive. Communist. He explained that he was merely trying to be a pastor to an oppressed and terrorized people. Even when they call us mad, he said, when they call us subversives and communists, and all the names they put on us, we know we only preach the subversive witness of the Beatitudes, which have turned everything upside down. What did the Beatitudes teach? That Jesus identifies most closely with the vulnerable, the impoverished, the suffering, and the weak. We must not seek the child Jesus in the pretty figures of our Christmas cribs, Romero said. We must seek him among the undernourished children who have gone to bed at night with nothing to eat, among the poor newspaper boys who will sleep covered with newspapers in doorways. The rich claimed that by taking sides in the civil struggle, Romero himself had become an advocate of violence. To this, Romero responded, We have never preached violence except the violence of love, which left Christ nailed to a cross. But the violence inflicted on the people, that was the violence of hate directed against Christ himself, who was embodied in the poor of El Salvador. The military began distributing flyers that read, Be a Patriot, Kill a Priest. But Romero no longer believed that the church should protect itself when its people are being abused and killed. He warned in words that I think about being a member of a church. He said, A church that suffers no persecution but enjoys the privileges and support of the things of the earth is not the true church of Jesus Christ. Indeed, he said it would be sad if in a country where people are being murdered so horrendously, we did not count priests among the victims. They are witnesses to a church incarnate in the people. And as for the perpetrators... Romero continued steadfastly to call them to repentance, even as the death threats against him continued to multiply. To those who have caused so many injustices and acts of violence, he said, those who have brought tears to so many homes, those who have stained themselves with the blood of so many murders, those who have hands soiled with tortures. Your crimes are ugly and horrible. 
You have abased the highest dignity of a human person, but God calls you and forgives you. But there was no repentance. So Romero finally decided to speak directly to the regular soldiers of the Salvadoran army, who as simple and faithful Catholics had great respect for the church and its archbishop. In a radio broadcast, he told them, Brothers, you come from our own people. You are killing your own brothers. No soldier is obliged to obey an order contrary to the law of God. It is high time you obeyed your consciences rather than sinful orders. The church cannot remain silent before such an abomination. In the name of God, in the name of this suffering people whose cry rises to heaven more loudly each day, I implore you, I beg you, and in the name of God I order you, stop the repression. Well, this time Romero had gone too far. The next day he said a simple mass in a small chapel. And this was back in 1980, and El Salvador is blisteringly hot in March. So the doors of the chapel were open. The doors of everything is open in El Salvador most of the time, and especially in the hot season. I've been in that chapel recently. And Romero preached his homily and celebrated the Mass, comparing those who serve the poor to grains of wheat that die and are reborn in an abundant harvest. After finishing his homily, he walked out from behind the altar, and a car pulled up in front of the open double doors, and a gunman shot Romero in the chest. The bullet pierced his heart. By the time they reached the hospital, and probably before, Monsignor Oscar Romero had died. Or so it seemed. Yet in the cities and mountain villages, people listened over and over again to recordings of his sermons. They say there was not a flower left in El Salvador because they were all strewing his tomb. His words were published throughout El Salvador and around the world. His picture hung in homes and chapels throughout Latin America. Many began calling him a saint. Nine years later, in 1989, and I remember this well because I was, um, I was studying then at Union Theological Seminary in New York. In 1989, a right-wing death squad um, murdered several Jesuit priests in El Salvador, who they called the brains of the revolution. And so they murdered them by literally blowing their brains out of their heads with high-powered firearms. Very symbolic murder. I guess artistic, even. And one of the assassins tried to kill Romero for good this time because they had a portrait of Romero, the Jesuits did, hanging on their wall, and the assassin fired a bullet right through the heart of the portrait, hoping he'd finally die. But he still wouldn't. If Romero had been able to talk to his assassins, he could have told them they were wasting their time. In fact, that's what he told a journalist who asked him uh, in the weeks before his death about all the threats against him. 
Romero said, yes, I've been threatened with death many times, but I should say that as a Christian, I don't believe in death. I believe in resurrection. If they kill me, I will rise again in the Salvadoran people. When I say that, I'm not trying to brag. Indeed, I say it with great humility. I hope they will be convinced that it would be a waste of their time. A bishop will die, but the church of God, which is the people, will never perish. So last month when I was in El Salvador with a group from uh, United Theological Seminary, we met a young Salvadoran nun. She must have been in her 20s. And she told us that, like us, she did not know Monsignor Romero during his life, but she knew him through the resurrection. Now, does that sound heretical to you, especially coming from a nun, that somebody besides Jesus has been resurrected? Before rejecting the idea, think a little bit about who Jesus was. He was a human being like us. He was God too, but in human form. We often think that being God was Jesus' greatest accomplishment. But maybe the most remarkable thing about Jesus was his humanity. That his life and death show what it means to be fully human. We tend to see the resurrection as God's all-time greatest magic act, performed one time and in one place to show God's awesome power. But what do the Gospels actually say about it? I mean, as Russell reminded us on Easter, in his Easter sermon, Jesus didn't exactly burst through the walls of his tomb like a superhero. Instead, the women come and they find an empty tomb. And they hear that Jesus has gone on ahead of them. And the Gospel of Mark ends right there, with the women fleeing in terror and amazement. But in the other Gospels, when Jesus does appear, he doesn't look like a resurrected God, or even much like a triumphant man. The resurrected Christ still bears the wounds of the crucified Jesus, and that's the form in which he's seen. Now, a one-time resurrection would probably make sense if there had been only one crucifixion. But the crucifixions didn't begin with Jesus, and they sure didn't end with him. People are crucified still every day around the world and right here in St. Paul. They, you know, uh, Grace's announcement reminded us of that. People die from exposure. They die from hunger from war waged by liberal presidents as well as conservative ones, from Wall Street machinations that leave them homeless and through poverty-waged jobs that exhaust them and send them to early graves. So with all these crucifixions going on, we'd better at least hope for a resurrection every now and then. <clears throat> so there I was in the streets of San Salvador last month, just before Easter, on a warm evening, 30 years after Monsignor Romero's martyrdom. And I was walking in a procession to, to commemorate his martyrdom with thousands of other people, each of us carrying a lighted candle. It was hard to keep the flames lit in the wind, 
but we sheltered them with lanterns made out of paper, glass, and plastic. And as I reached the bottom of a steep hill, I looked back and saw flowing up behind me an endless stream of people holding lighted candles, each of us like a drop of water in a river reflecting the fractured light of star fragments, moving slowly along together from a point of mysterious origin to a destination none of us could see.